it's Siobhan Chapman here, and welcome to our new segment, The Future of Wealth, led by Melinda Hightower, the head of Multicultural Strategic Client Segment. Melinda, welcome. I'll pass it over to you. Welcome to The Future of Wealth, where we explore the power of cultural capital in advancing the arts, philanthropy, and inclusive growth. I'm Mel Hightower, head of UBS's Multicultural Investor Segment, and with me today is social entrepreneur, Sayu Bajwani. Sayu, so glad you could join us today. Thanks for having me, Mel. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Me too. I can't wait for our audience to hear more about your incredible journey. You were born in India, actually, and raised in Belize before moving to New York City. How has that cross-continental upbringing shaped your views on access, opportunity, and equity? Well, for one thing, uh, you know, I've been in an environment where people of color are the majority. And so when I moved to the United States, I came in with the assumption that uh, that we could do anything, anywhere. Um, and I also went to an all-girls school. So I grew up with the assumption that girls could be the president and the teachers and the principal. And I think that that, um, that both of those experiences helped me to come to the United States with the perspective that regardless of your background um, and your gender uh, or your ethnicity, you could be um, you could be anything you wanted to be. And you know, there's that maybe overused phrase, but um, that you can't be what you can't see. And I had seen the possibility of every um, potential leadership position for people who looked like me. And so I think it, that was such such a deep influence on when I arrived here and thought, oh, well, why aren't people like me in positions of power? Why aren't young people like me getting access to services? Um, and it really shaped, I think, the entire trajectory of my work in the United States. And it made me an entrepreneur because it was really the, the I think for a lot of us who are entrepreneurs, we are responding to, um, you know, a market need, if you will. And in my case, it was a social need that um, I thought, well, you know, why don't we find a solution to giving young people access or giving immigrants access? Right. And your work in social activism really began early on due to that experience. And so you you founded, for example, South Asian Youth Action, uh, the first organization in the U.S. focused on supporting youth who trace their ancestry to the Indian subcontinent. And would love to hear, tell us more about mentors or moments that helped foster your passion for youth leadership and then I think also democracy. Sure. Well, I, I always say when I started South Asian Youth Action, I myself was pretty were, was pretty young. And so, I, I mean, I came to the United States as an international student. And that um, I think for a lot of people who come here, um, at least to study, we don't always assume that we're going to stay. And um, I think the journey for me in the U.S. was very, inf- very much informed by trying to understand, like, what this is. This was the early mid '90s, mid '90s when I started South Asian Youth Action, and at the time there were not as many South Asians in the United States as there are now, uh, and the Asian American landscape was uh, generally tended to be predominantly East Asian, so Chinese, Japanese, Korean. And 
I was on my own personal journey, frankly, to understand what it meant to be an Indian person living in the United States. Um, and, uh, just started to encounter more young people who were asking that question. Um, and, and, you know, just to kind of keep it short, I would say for the purposes of this conversation, like there, I would, you know, you asked what moments shaped my passion. I think there have been so many moments in my early, um, adolescence and then my first arrival to the U.S. And early adolescence, when I was growing up in Belize, in, I was in high school when Belize became independent of, um, of Britain. And I was observing our country's fight for independence. And, um, and so I think that was probably my first experience with what it meant for, um, for us to kind of secure this independence. And then when I came to the U.S., trying to understand kind of where South Asians fit in the landscape. Um, and then I went to California, actually. Um, that is the moment that I remember most clearly. That I went to California, and um, I was in Northern California and encountered a number of South Asian women who were engaged in activism in academia. Um, and the South Asian com- there are segments of the South Asian community that, were, that had a longer history in California. And that sort of led me to see, again, going back to the, like, you know, seeing what we could be. Um, being in Southern Northern California helped me see that there was a possibility for creating an organization in New York that um, that worked with young people and that helped us um, or them <laughs> to, um, like, I think that a lot of us who come here with our parents um, live in two worlds, right? We live in the world of that our parents um, come from, and we live in the world that we're growing up in. And South Asian Youth Action uh, was, for me, a solution to that um, cultural tension that we experienced as young people. Um, and it created a home for young people to say, okay, there's there's a way to live in harmony within these worlds. There's a way to choose a path that doesn't reject everything that I've grown up with, but that allows me to explore more fully who I am and who I want to be. Thank you for that, because I think that duality of identity that you just described, how multicultural individuals are often reconciling the cultures that they are working, that are that they're exposed to, the ones that they've grown up with, and as well as new cultures that they may be encountering um, in their adolescence or or even later. I think that duality and and that and, and navigating that space is part of the resilience, I think, of of multicultural individuals and particularly of immigrants in the United States. I feel like we often talk about resilience as um, as a good quality, and it absolutely can be. I think that often people like like me have to be resilient um, out of necessity because the communities that we are immigrating to, um, the institutions that we are part of, are not really set up to accommodate our full and authentic selves. And so resilience can be a beautiful thing, um, but it can also be extremely exhausting. Uh, I I run a a sub-stack actually called Number One Immigrant Daughter, and I often talk about you know, what it means to be the eldest daughter in an immigrant family and probably the eldest daughter 
in any family the what you have to take on uh and that can serve you really well but it can actually be really exhausting it's really exhausting to be the fixer it's really exhausting to be the educator to be the bridge builder and i think mostly we've seen it as um as a positive thing but i think there's an interesting moment in our society now where there's a lot more exploration of how that has been really tough and um damaging and i think that people who are bicultural or biracial um or frankly are from communities of color are pushing back to get our institutions and our families even to understand all of who we are rather than trying to fit into the mold that the family or the school or the institution um the pre-existing mold which is i think for people of my generation there was more of a tendency you know to fit into that mold and i think that that doesn't just apply to people who are um from different from different communities of color i think it applies to women um any institution any people in the US um or elsewhere that institutions were not designed to serve have taken on the responsibility of fitting into those institutions and now we're in a moment where we're saying how can institutions adapt uh or how can we get our families to accept all of who we are does that make sense it does and i thank you for raising it because i think even when it comes to entrepreneurship or even social entrepreneurship um specifically i think many of us are entrepreneurs by choice and and it's amazing when you have that luxury but particularly with social entrepreneurship i find that we're here by necessity <laughs> because sure. the yeah. the institutions and the structures aren't working uh the way that they sh- they should and there's opportunity to to really be disruptive um in a good way you know uh, you know in terms of causing good trouble and i'd love to to talk about that a little bit more because that that looking at um the need for that change when systems and infrastructures um need to become more inclusive you have the distinction really of serving as new york city's first commissioner of immigrant affairs and so what are some of the immediate challenges that you took on upon assuming that role well for one thing i took on that role um in 2002 so uh that was about 6 months i was appointed about 6 months after september 11 so it was a very particular moment in our city and our country uh, michael bloomberg had been elected mayor the city of new york had uh voted voters had um had established the office of commissioner of sorry the office of immigrant affairs as a it, it was it always existed but they had established it as part of the city charter so that's mm-hmm. how i was that's why i was the first um and as a south asian myself uh as someone who had worked in south asian communities it was incredibly meaningful uh for me personally but also for communities who felt connected to me to see me in that role but the the immediate challenge was how we as a city as city government could reassure immigrants of all backgrounds that they could continue to access city services in a way that um and, and could safely do that because we had a national environment and a and a citywide environment of fear 
um, and concern and people who, frankly, people who looked like my brothers and father and uncle um, were, were under attack. And so there was a lot of work that the city and the Bloomberg administration had to do to ensure that communities felt like they could continue to access city services. And that's everything from parents enrolling their children in schools to uh, reporting domestic violence victims, reporting uh, violence to police officers. You know, it's just this wide range of things that, and I always talk about the fact that like most of us don't know the difference between what a local police officer or a sheriff or the FBI does. It was really important that the communities, the immigrant communities of New York City felt reassured to be able to interact with city government. And that was the most, I think that was the most pressing challenge that we took on um, is, you know, ensuring that people would feel safe uh, and um, and feel like they belonged to the city just as much as anyone else. What are you most proud of from your time as the commissioner? The thing that I'm most proud of um, is, there are a lot of things that I'm most proud of, but I'll say something that has survived is that during my time as commissioner, we established uh, Immigrant Heritage Week in New York City. And um, I think the Immigrant Heritage Week usually falls uh, in April um, around the, the day that, um, I think it was around the day that the most immigrants had arrived on Ellis Island. And so we had picked that week. And now actually June is um, Immigrant Heritage Month. It's a national sort of commemoration. But um, I loved that we were able to create that in the city because it's an opportunity to celebrate the contributions of immigrants. um, And it focuses on, I think often when we talk about immigrants, we talk about uh, what their, um, there is a narrative about what immigrants take away uh, and not enough about what immigrants bring to this country and how, and in New York City in particular, what they contribute to the social fabric and the cultural fabric and the commercial fabric of the city. No, I love that you take in and really transform the conversation by celebrating, you know, the contributions and what makes us different. And so you've spoken at length about the importance of diversity and representation and leadership, particularly the representation of marginalized communities in public office. And in 2021, you founded the Women's Democracy Lab, WDL, to support women of color and indigenous women after election. Can you tell us, tell us more about WDL and what strategies you believe and have found to be the most effective in increasing representation? I, for me, Women's Democracy Lab was a successor to the work that I had been doing just before that, uh, which was running an organization that I also founded called New American Leaders. And when I started New American Leaders, it was because I remembered that being a South Asian in city government was incredibly important um, to shape the conversation, right? Like I could talk in very personal ways about how my communities were being affected by the climate post 9-11. And I think that, like, with New American Leaders, it became really clear that I feel like if you talk to most people who have been working in the democracy space, we have thought that the issue was getting the right people into government. Um, and 
I did that work for 10 years and it became really clear that the problem wasn't just who was serving in government. The problem was how the systems are working. And so um, what was happening is like, you know, when you have someone who the system was never, like our system of government wasn't really designed for uh, working class and middle class people to run for office and get elected and serve in office. Um, New York City is a little different because we have pretty decent salaries for state legislators and city council uh, members. But actually, in most parts of the country, these jobs are meant to be, were designed to be part-time. So I started Women's Democracy Lab because we were finding that a lot of the folks who are getting elected to office were finding it very hard to, uh, it was just not sustainable, frankly, for them to be in office because the jobs were never, were not designed for them. And so um, I think in terms of strategies, like I think there's two or three things that to me are really key. And one of them is ensuring that our legislators are being paid full-time salaries for full-time work. Because back when, you know, we started, we created this nation, um, we thought, like our founding fathers thought that we should have citizen legislatures, which means that people are just serving part-time. And that's no longer sustainable in places like Arizona and Florida and New York with large populations. It might work in Montana, you know, but it definitely doesn't work in these places. And so I think the full-time legislator pay is a big one. I think another big thing which we um, do in New York City is uh, public financing, so public funds that match um, money that you raise, which makes it possible for people who do not have deep pockets to run for office. So I would say those are two um, two things that I think are really important. But one last point that I want to make about Women's Democracy Lab is that it exists really to support women of color and indigenous women while they are serving in office because we put a lot of effort into getting people to run and getting them elected. And then we sort of say, okay, well, now you're in office. See you later. And Congress members, newly elected Congress members, will tell you often that you know, they're mistaken for staff members. They are barely able to, like, figure out where the bathroom is before people are throwing policy ideas at them. And so we really need to create a more supportive uh, landing pad for people once they get elected um, and then support them throughout because they're our representatives and we're supposed to be in partnership with them as opposed to being constantly um, antagonistic. So I want to go back because resilience has been something that we've talked about in a number of different ways. It's been a recurring theme of our conversation, and I've been thinking about it more and how that word, just like the word strong, can be a double-edged sword, particularly for women of color. You wrote an article on that about the collective exhaustion of women of color in leadership, and the reason I point to resistance and strength being a double-edged sword is that it often normalizes adversity as the correct state of being. I'd love to hear your thoughts because that article was from a few years ago on where you see the landscape currently. Yeah, I mean, I just got chills when I heard you saying that, you know, like we really, adversity and hustle should not be our constant state of being, and yet it is. Um for women of color all around and certainly in leadership 
And certainly if you're in a position of having to raise money for a nonprofit or, um, or a startup, you know, and I, I think that I started to feel it like literally in my body, which is what led me to, to write that article because I was sharing it with friends. And it, the article came out in February of 2020. What I think uh, has been great, though, is over the last few years, I think there's much more attention to this issue. And I think the, the you know, the framing that um, that you had before this question is indicative of that. Like, I think there's much more attention being paid to resilience and, and adversity as, you know, as a sort of double-edged sword, as you say. And so I think the... Currently, I think there's a lot more resources. There's conversation about rest. There's conversation about um, about providing support beyond the point of hiring. Um, and the thing that I think a lot about is when people describe, there's this kind of frustration, right? That um, actually, let me begin that part again. I, what I think about when I think about the world that we want to see. I think about the places that we already feel at home, and that's not always family, and that's not always with people who look like us, right? But we have all had moments of feeling extreme um, comfort and acceptance, and I think that it's possible to replicate those uh, feelings in institutions. I think that, like, it's hard work, but I don't think it's impossible, like, it's is not something that, you know, is probably going to be that easy and acceptable, acceptable. But I think most people have experienced a sense of belonging. And where would you encourage institutions and organizations to focus their attention for creating that sense of extreme comfort and belonging? Well, I think the one, the first and most important thing is asking folks what they want and what they need you know, the question of what can we do to support. Um, and I know that that can sometimes place a burden on um, on women of color, but I think that um, seeing it as a partnership is really important as opposed to, like, making assumptions about what people need. Um, I think that all, um, all ideas have to come with resources and dedicated resources that are, um, that are not short-term. That um, And I think that the other thing is, like, thinking about how to make this support um, be year-round as well, as opposed to cyclical around certain uh, incidences or around certain events. I think that there is a tendency to, um, to kind of have Band-Aid uh, support around, like, crises, right? But that um, putting relationships before crisis is really, really important. Um, and making and asking questions um, instead of making assumptions, I think, are also really important strategies. I love that, that it's not being reactive and build relationships so that when there is an issue to be addressed, it's not an immediate, okay, well, how do we fix this issue? It's more, it's how can we help you as an individual? So thank you so much for your time. I've learned so much from this conversation and appreciate you taking the time once again to share your journey. Thanks, Val. It was great to be here. And it's always good to um, find a like-minded partner in, um, in, you know, addressing some of these issues. So thanks for having me.
The material presented in this podcast has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. It is intended to be educational in nature. It is not an advertisement, nor is it a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any financial instruments or to participate in any particular trading strategy, nor should it be viewed as such by the listener. UBS AG or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. None of UBS or its representatives is suggesting that the recipient or any other person take a specific course of action or any other action at all in response to this podcast. By accessing and listening to this podcast, the listener acknowledges and agrees with the intended purpose described here and disclaims any expectation or belief that the information constitutes investment advice or a solicitation of any kind. Any financial instruments or services described in this podcast may not be eligible for sale in all jurisdictions or to certain categories or investors. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services Incorporated offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review client relationship summary provided at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary or ask your UBS financial advisors for a copy.